You're listening to Pod Wars with Gary and Justice. Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with my favorite co-host, screw you, Evan, my boy Justice. Thank you, Gary. Hey, everyone. We'll see if Evan's listening to this one and be like, hey, guys, what the heck? And if he doesn't say that, we know he just blew us off. Right. He he talks about how he, you know he's part of the pod, but... He's, he's more focused on school and the kids. Which is a terrible choice in priorities. But that's all beside the point. Let's start out, before we get into our interview, with a little bit of Twitter tidbits. Live, Live. from the Pod Nation, we bring you Twitter Tidbits. Right, so if you've been paying attention to us for a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we, we dropped the ball on not posting on Twitter tidbits or Twitter like polls, but now we posted polls and didn't talk about it on the pod. So we're going to talk about one poll in particular because it relates very closely to Josh Lang's interview. So I asked you guys, this week we interviewed Josh Lang, animator for the epic Captain Iron Man Thor versus Thanos fight. And so I asked, what's your favorite scene from Endgame? And the options were Captain America lifting Melnir, Tony Snap, or on your left. And Captain America lifting Melnir obviously won. That's one of the best scenes, you know, in the movie. Um, my opinion too. That's what I voted for on my my personal Twitter account. And uh, my the, personal Twitter is the Podwars Twitter, and I am currently nope. Won't let me vote for it. What the hell? Come on, Twitter. Well, it's because it's it's passed, so that's why. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so we had Captain America at 53%, Tony Snap at 27 and then On Your Left at 20 Although, I think that the scene that did make me cry the most was the scene where they all walk through the portal. So, well, I'm surprised On Your Left didn't do more. If we said it was Avengers Assemble, then it might have, because that definitely led to some waterworks. Uh, yep, I'm... Missed it on this this poll, guys. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's hard choosing an epic moment in Avengers when it's like all epic moments. We should have chose the taco, like with Ant-Man and the Hulk. That's a real tearjerker there, bro. <laughs> oh, for sure. But we're going to be having an interview with Josh Lang, and it's pretty dope, guys. So enjoy the interview. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know how you guys felt about the um, the Disney movies so far, but for me, what was missing in the Skywalker saga was that moment where you had all the principal heroes from the original trilogy united on screen at the same time for real. And we never got that moment. And that was one of the tough things for me with like reconciling how that trilogy worked on its own because that was the number one thing that I personally wanted to see and I don't know why they didn't prioritize it. You know, it was it was uh, something that they, I think, ended up having to um, try to fix in post, you know, with uh, Carrie Fisher's passing. And I think if they had just made that happen in the first film, it would have saved them a lot of trouble of trying to, you know, put that all together later on somehow. Um, but yeah, when, I, I was not uh, one of the fans that expected that kind of storyline where we were repeating the underdog story for the alliance and i was like i was watching force awakens and i thought this is this is exciting and fun but like this is not at all the story i was expecting <laughs> to be the natural evolution of jedi you know no nah. okay are you pro or anti uh cranky luke skywalker in the last jedi i i i wish yeah to, to me that was also one of the big disjointed things was i'm uh, seeing how he could be so um, flawed and negative in a sense, right? Um, when I thought he he exited the original trilogy as the calm, poised, more Obi-Wan style, you know, self-controlled master. And if I had done the trilogy, I think the story would have gone a little more like, um, you know, the second one would have been him training Ray, and ending with some sort of big showdown in the third where, you know, maybe like Han Solo 
and uh, Chewie end up sacrificing themselves to blow up whatever the main Death Star type thing would have been at that point. Um, and just having a lot of those payoffs happen that you were sort of expecting from how Jedi ended. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think they... Think? I think they... Well, you probably would feel the same way. I think they went into Force Awakens, they made a good movie, and they had no idea where to go from there. And they were just kind of <laughs> like... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, J.J. was out at that point. I mean, he, he knew how hard it would have been to stay on for all three. And everything I've heard about that guy just gives me a lot of um, affection for him because he seems like a really good dude to work with. Um, but yeah, I think when you approach making the films from the perspective of what feels like Star Wars instead of what are fans expecting the story to look like, um, you get yourself in a few unique traps that are very hard to have a totally different writer and director you know, navigate your way out of and then you to navigate out of his you know, um, <laughs> pitfalls. It was very, yeah, it, it was very, it was kind of a mess by the end of it all. <laughs> one, one of the things that we always talk about is that the, like, was the, the sequel trilogy is a thing and like there's some really good parts and there's some not some great parts, but the, the common, I think, pitfall is the fact that they just didn't have a clear vision or like a one person writing and the different directors. I think that's, that's where it all kind of fell apart. But um, I mean, there, like I said, there there's some there's some good parts, and then there's some there's some uh, the parts that are kind of tough to watch. For there's me, some good least. parts, and then there's some blue milk. But that's kind of the way it is. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. But that's kind of that's Star Wars. Once you reach a certain age, you see all the flaws, and, and you just have to push through it. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, uh, there's gonna be this generation that's growing up. Like we're we're prequel lovers, so um, we we adore it, even though we know that there's a lot of flaws in it as well. But there's like the same thing for this generation growing up. They're going to love this Star Wars sequel trilogy and think that's their Star Wars. And as a fan, I don't want to ever, you know, crush someone's dreams and be like, you're not a fan for liking that. Like, maybe it's not my cup of tea, but like, at least you, you're liking this, this, this thing of Star Wars. And hopefully you spur on another generation of people. Absolutely. I mean, the, the lesson is, you know, it's for kids. And that's what Lucas always intended. Um, you can't lose sight of that as a, you know... Uh, an older Star Wars fan, because if you do, then you just you give into that same bitterness that was always what was warned against um, from the very concept of the story. And that just misses the point. Yeah, it gets rid of that fun kid fantasy aspect of it. But yeah, I, I was yeah, the optimism of the force. Exactly. I always tell Justice, it's like the sequel trilogy had the opposite pitfalls of the prequels. Like the prequels had a great cohesive story, but terrible acting and dialogue. The sequels had no cohesion and good acting and pretty darn good dialogue. <laughs> they always get good actors. So yeah, that's always the trick is can you make the good actors execute with the Star Wars material that they're given? And that's that's always where the, <laughs> where the rubber hits the road and you know, that stuff. Ian McGregor is a gem, Gary. Ewan McGregor is oh, yeah. fantastic. I love that man. He was plugged in. And I can't wait for the Obi-Wan series. I can't wait to see what they do with that. Oh, my gosh. They're saying it's going to be a standalone one season, which I'm like, that's not enough for us fans, you know? Yeah. I, I hope that they change their mind because... Um, yeah, I could see them going a lot, go a lot, for, a lot further. Do you think they're going to stay on Tatooine for that? I think so. I mean, like, he has to be watching Luke the whole time, you'd think. But then it's basically yeah, like I'm... the Mandalorian with Baby Yoda, but instead Baby Luke. Yeah, it might be a little too one note, and that's I think why they're keeping the the release schedule, you know, more limited. But I would love to see him hopping off, doing other side missions. I just I love that character. I'm wondering if they're going to pull from the Jason Aaron uh, comic book that came out in, I think, 2018 or 2016, 2017 or something like that. There's there's like short stories where it's based on Obi-Wan and what he was doing when he, he was on Tatooine um, in between three and four. So I'm wondering if they're going to pull, pull story elements from that. And that'd be really cool because those are some awesome, fun stuff to read. Yeah, there's always echoes of that that they honor somehow. You know, they'd be kind of wasting their time if they're making all this content and then just ignoring it, you know, at this point with the story group and everybody being much more plugged into each other and, and how they're trying to move the characters forward. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and the Cassian Andor uh, 
series sounds pretty dope too. So I'm I'm hyped about that one. Yeah, I'll be I'll be there for that for sure. Although uh, I got to say, Rogue One to me had the characters that I cared the least about, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> Honestly, a little bit same here. Maybe it's because I knew they were gonna die, or just they weren't Jedi. I don't know. It just didn't connect with me the same. Love the movie, but the characters didn't sit with me as much. Yeah, I loved how they were able to achieve the serious tone and just those great shots of the ships going through the the massive landscapes with the um, huge figures on Jetta. And I loved how scenic it was. Um, but then you just, yeah, when it came down to like who was trying to get the story and just the tone was very mismatched at times and it never quite felt like we've since gotten the perfect Star Wars movie in this last, you know, run. But, you know, that's why The Mandalorian caught fire, I think, because it was so different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why we got to make Solo 2 happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. If we get a Solo 2, I, I bet you uh, it would be a it'd be a spicy, awesome movie. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to say the word spicy on pod. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, spicy notes. <laughs> so, guys, we're really excited to have Josh Lang on the podcast. Josh has worked on a lot of things you're probably very familiar with. Little-known projects like AAA games, Rockstar games such as Red Dead Redemption. Also, some little-known movies like Avengers, Infinity War, Endgame, and a lot of the geeky media we love. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Super happy to be here. Thanks, guys, for the opportunity. So we usually like to start out with just geeking out with our guests here, and we have a usual first question with for you. This one being, since you have worked a lot with Marvel, but we also know you're a big Star Wars fan, what is your favorite Marvel and Star Wars film? So for me, um, I grew up as basically an 80s, 90s kid. So Je- Jedi came along at just the right time. Uh, I loved the... Um, Sarlacc sequence, loved the end battle. It just blew my mind. And there was just so much optimism and just, you know, pomp and circumstance with the whole one. So for me, that was the one that felt the best watching it. Well, it's also just like that finality to the series. It's so incredible. Yeah. And then as far as Marvel goes, um, it's definitely uh, the Avengers because of the personal um, nostalgia for me, uh, the experience working on that and the incredible time that it was. So um, there's a lot of really solid uh, hits in that franchise at this point, which is amazing to think that uh, we came from not even the studio being formed to, you know, multiple ones per year coming out. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be proud of with all those films. Well, and we're going to definitely dive into more of the Avengers, but I'd like to hear a little bit of why you chose Jedi. I think he's, Justice, correct me if I'm wrong, is he the first one so far in the pod to say uh, Return of the Jedi is his fave? Yeah, he is. Most of the people normally go with uh, Empire, so uh, congrats to being different. <laughs> Empire was the first one I saw, so that was um, that was fun to actually just be a kid watching TV, and then just suddenly that movie's on, and I'm like, wait, is this... What, what is this? It just didn't compute to understand like what I was seeing with the, the Hoth battle and the walkers coming in. And I was just like, so obsessed at that point. And I, I couldn't understand like what this all connected to. And neither of my parents were huge star Wars fans. So my mom was like, Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, star Wars. That's, you know, you know, it was just sort of a passing. <laughs> Don't worry about that sort of expression. But I, I had, it, it had, it's uh, hooks in me right away. And so, I wanted to see the next one, which was amazing and, and so much more action packed. And, um, you know, obviously then I saw the first one um, and just became such a, an avid, rabid fan of the series. And Empire for me is one that I love watching late at night. I've probably seen it much more times than Jedi at this point. Um, so there's a lot of love for that. But the one that like I connected with as a kid was definitely Return of the Jedi and that uh put me on the trajectory towards uh, being, you know, a hardcore fan ever since. So I kind of want to take a step back a little bit and want to know how, what led you to like to becoming an animator and, and this career path that you're on. Yeah. For me, I was drawing all the time when I was a young kid and that was sort of how I translated what I saw in the world and interpreted it. 
And so we were watching a lot of Disney animated movies as a kid and, um, you know, Pinocchio movies like that really just sunk in and got my imagination going. And I never really was a kid that did the stop motion thing um, with the home, with our home camcorder. But my path was much more about just trying to draw the characters, get their likenesses down um, and internalizing them that way. So uh, I, in high school, got really into um, filmmaking and movies and visual effects and was reading all the uh, 3D software books that I could find at our local Barnes and Noble, just to try to absorb and internalize what material there was out there that actually taught this stuff. Um, and that's where I would just buy my Cinefix magazines. And later on, when I graduated, uh, I went to a small liberal arts school um, in Washington that didn't really have an animation program for freshmen. So I did a year of um, liberal arts courses. And then I realized, you know what, I think I need to make much more drastic steps to connect with um, 3D animation and visual effects as a career. Because um, I saw Toy Story 2 when I was um, early on in my freshman year. It was so re-energized by what I saw in that, that I realized, okay, I have to drop out and pursue a vi you know, visual effects and 3D animation course somewhere. So um, Vancouver Film School ended up being the right choice for me. And um, once I was there and learning all aspects of filmmaking, it really just felt like something that kept building that excitement and um, fascination with you know this new medium that was evolving in front of our very eyes. I do love Toy Story too. It makes me interested. What kind of aspects of that movie really inspired you towards animation? For me, it was the next level of creativity in um, the the story in terms of like the shots that they were achieving. I'll, I'll never forget that one shot where. Um, as the toy repairman um, sequence is putting Woody back together and he's sewing his arm, there's a shot where it's from underneath the arm and the two pieces connect together. And just putting the camera in small, unusual places like that was really um, fascinating to me. And I, I just got so um, stimulated by that and just thinking, this is a new way of making movies. I haven't seen stuff like this before. Um, and I feel like with how much I love animation and at that point computers and graphics, it made sense to find a way uh, forward with that um, kind of skill set and interests uh, in mind. And it's interesting that film is what kind of got you interested in animation because your first step was actually more so in uh, the world of video games with Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, although at, at, at first it was a little startup video game company in Chicago um, that was founded by some of the ex-Moral Combat guys. So um, that was my first real way of, of cutting my teeth in the industry. And What was that, that, that company was, called? Uh, Studio Hugante. And they're, they closed down um, a few years later, unfortunately, but that was my chance to actually get paid as an animator. I was 20 years old, super young, and just happy to be there. And we made two fighting games, and uh, just it was for the X, the first Xbox. So that was before really many people had been, you know, seeing what that hardware could do. So it, it was a really exciting time to just get a chance to enter the industry without um, uh, as much competition as there is now, obviously, with so many schools pumping graduates out. But um, yeah, I, I kind of built my career with that start in video game animation. Can you share a little bit of what the experience was breaking out into both video game animation and then moving into a big AAA studio like Rockstar? Sure. So um, as far as like navigating the video game career, that was something that uh, took a lot of focus and attention on just learning the software and learning how to manipulate motion capture data, which was a lot of what we were working with, not only at Studio Gante, but at Rockstar as well. And so um, when Higante closed down, uh, some of the guys I knew there had since moved out to San Diego and I was able to interview there and, and get a sense of what they were doing. And it was one of the best interviews I've ever been on. They offered me the job on the spot and I was like, how can I say no? This is amazing what they're working on here. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and, and even on that first day that I was there at the studio, I saw them working on the prototype for 
Red Dead. And back then it didn't, I don't even think have a name, but it was a very simple, just Western game. And um, I thought, okay, maybe that's what I'm going to be working on. And it ended up that only a a couple of years later would I actually get a chance to start uh, helping make content for that. But they were working on that game from 2005 to 2010. And that was a very long development cycle with a lot of revisions and iterations and just going back to the drawing board and um, trying new things. And it took a lot of people working a lot of hours to pull that off the way they did. And so it was a very um, lucky and, and fortunate opportunity to be able to connect with that team. Is there any special memories that you have um, from working on the Red Dead game? Uh, for me, it was it was definitely getting a chance to see what it, what um, being on a large team with that much talent could do, um, because I'd only worked on smaller teams before that, and so this was the first AAA um, studio I'd worked at, and we made a couple other games before that with them, but Red Dead was the one that like the whole studio at some point had touched at some point or another. And so you really got immersed in that Western world and thinking about how you would want to actually be a living, breathing character in there. And the technology for the game engine was finally allowing players to essentially remain in the world with as one consistent uh, pervasive moment and not have like a bunch of menus pulling you in and out of the experience. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of cinematics that would break that illusion with the um, fading out and the fading in to watch the cutscenes, but um, when it was all said and done, it was something that was a lot of fun to play. There were a lot of bugs, <laughs> as all games have, like right up until the end, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, how are we going to fix all this?" Um, but you know, the the few patches and, and DLC expansion items that came out after that were able to build on a very successful um, platform with the game. That's super cool. Uh... I personally haven't played the first one, but I played the second one, and I could definitely see um, how that game has super influenced the gaming industry. What uh, specific aspects of Red Dead did, were you able to work on and um, help make in the game? So I was doing a lot of the ambient world characters initially, and um, you know, a lot of the people that you'd see around, and maybe there was a, a lady getting robbed, or there was a person that you were trying to help, you know, with one uh, mini game or objective. So that was a lot of what I worked on. And then as far as the player stuff, it was a lot of weapon animations. So like every time you fired a pistol in the game, that was essentially uh, one of the things that I worked on or rifles or, um, you know, a knife or a a stick of dynamite, that kind of stuff was revised over and over again. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was stuff that you would see a lot, but, you know, it was um, also a mix of that with some cutscene support as well. So what's it like doing the mix of the kind of game mechanics versus the cutscene aspect? So the game mechanics means you are much more focused on testing and iterating on very short clips and making sure that they're always being um, improved to the point that the responsiveness that the player is expecting um, matches what they see in the game. And there's a lot of short clips that all weave in and out of each other, the transitions, Um, You'll have maybe uh, an animation that's also blended with a few others, depending on whether or not you're crouching or standing or injured or jumping um, on a horse. You know, there's all these different ways that um, these clips can be uh, made more complicated and and detailed. So uh, it's it's a very much player focused and, um, you know, iterative testing process. With cutscenes, you're very much just trying to improve the data that you're getting from the performance sessions, where they capture facial mocap and uh, body performances at the same time. So we were getting data from the Los Angeles um, shoots that they were doing, um, oftentimes with horses as part of the shoot. And that data would come back down to us at San Diego, and we would apply it to the characters, see what sort of face shapes would break, what would look okay, Um, same with the body data. And you're just trying to massage that and, and polish it to the point where it just feels like everything's looking organic and smooth and you know works for the characters that are the final models. So I'd like to dive into more of that kind of interactive amount of gaming and 
you mentioned the bugs with more of those kind of weapon mechanics and all of that aspect. Did you have more bugs with that versus the cutscenes? Can you kind of give me an idea of how that correction process goes about? Yeah, I think the problem areas more than most are when you're just trying to navigate the world and having bounding boxes be clear. Um, you don't want to have transitions into and out of cutscenes, pop the characters to different locations, um, and just have that jarring effect. So just making sure that the hookups are smooth in between each phase of the game that they're playing um, t took a lot of effort. And so, you know, of course, you're also making sure that every little clip you have um, that plays in succession transitions nice and smoothly and blends together well. Um, but, you know, you'll have people testing the game that just do things that you never would have even expected a player to do. And they would expose all sorts of problems that would need their own, you know, uh, you know, requirements to fix. And you also told us a little bit, too, before we were uh, recording, how you kind of had that interaction with the mocap part of it, too. And you guys got to play around a little bit with the tech for that. What kind of work did you do with the mocap? So the mocap was great because we saw that from all angles. Um, we would get the the raw data that was, you know, re a really good start. And then when you're actually trying to integrate that into um, gameplay, obviously it needs to be reworked quite a bit. So you're not only retiming the speed of how these things happen um, as a player, but also making sure that the poses and the silhouettes work a little stronger for all angles that you'll see. And then we had our own in-house motion capture studio at Rockstar. Um, that allowed us to perform our own versions of those actions and we would be able to turn those around and get them hooked up and visible to test and game within only a few hours. Um, so it was a pretty smooth process for making sure we had our own stamp on what we thought would make for the best animations. So, you know, there's motion capture actors at this point who are very familiar with what the demands are and the unique um, complications are of that technology. And then animators as well, they know what they want to end up seeing in the game and um, what sort of transition poses maybe you've got to match at the beginning and end. So um, everybody's able to contribute to, you know, making sure that those look great um, in their own way with their own subtleties. Yeah, and one thing I do, I do really appreciate with Red Dead Redemption, having played both the first and the second one, is you guys did a great job of having it feel like a very human interaction and a real human story without get dipping deep into kind of that, if you're familiar with the term, probably uncanny valley that you often run into with video games where it's just slightly off. It was really cool just seeing that really, it, it felt like you're actually hearing a story about a true person. Yeah, the, we definitely didn't have um, the massive technical challenges that people have now with um, the photorealism having more um you know, getting more approached and close to that. We were early enough on that it was more just about can we make our own world feel believable and not necessarily um, visually, you know, believable as photoreal. So you're able to focus more on story, on the gameplay mechanics, on just how much fun it is and, and how much you enjoy being in the world. Now, we talked a lot about your experience here with Rockstar and Red Dead, but how was it transitioning from that realm to more of the realm of animation and filmmaking? Yeah, so that was something that had been on my mind for a while. Um, I had always, like, like I said, from a kid, loved movies and, and was so obsessed with how those things were made and, and the impact that they made on people. And so as I was working on games and really enjoying the experience, um, and working on titles that had good reception and made a, you know, a, a great impact, especially Red Dead that year, um, since it won the game of the year, it felt like um, in that summer when, when it came out, that that was as far as I was ready to take that part of my career, and I was ready to climb the next mountain. And so I had... Um, an opportunity that came up in Los Angeles to join the team at a previous studio. And that would be my, my best chance to give that a shot finally. So it took a while, had to wait, you know, like I said, over eight years for that shot. Um, but when it was ready, I was ready to do it um, and, and not look back with, with regret. So when it comes to, I guess, filmmaking and gaming, what are some of the challenges that you 
face when doing both of them? I'm sure they're both probably very different from each, but what are some of the challenges that you face? Yeah, you always have to go into both with the mind of a storyteller, for sure, and with an eye on the unique challenges and subtleties of the format that they're being put for. And so with games, you have to make sure you're always tumbling around as you animate and viewing your character from all these different angles to make sure that um, the animations read very clearly, that the responsiveness is appropriate. But when it comes to film, it's a very different um, end state that it's going to be created for. And so it's always, what does the camera see? How does it look in relation to that? And you can do all sorts of you know manipulations and cheats even just to make sure that your um, animation has the right impact uh, from that one single perspective. So yeah, you definitely have to wear uh, different hats for it, but you are always trying to make the same impression of excitement, clarity, um, and emotional payoff. Well, I know we've had other people talk about it too. Probably the challenge for both of those of making things that either somebody won't notice or somebody might never see with the whole cunning process. Do you have more of that and you think gaming or the cinema that you work on? Gosh, it's such a high amount that's not ever seen that it's even, I've never really thought about comparing that. Um, but yeah, just I, I would say for fans and, and gamers alike, just be aware that there is a lot of time and attention that is put into content that you never see and that helps at least get the final product as good as it was. Um, and that's just part of the, the game and you can't get too precious about any one animation and you know, art to me is always best when it's put out there and people respond to it and give notes and try to improve it and you know, bring it to have the next level of um, com complexity and, and entertainment value that it could have. So that's, yeah, that's definitely been something that I've had to um, just work with that reality for a long time. Well, you kind of encountered a similar situation like this with uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. Because can you explain a little bit of what you worked on for that movie? Sure. Yeah, that, that's a great example. Um, so X-Men Days of Future Past, great movie, had a great reception from fans. But the sequence that I and you know many others worked on was completely cut from the film. And we didn't know that before we saw it. And so we were, it was a very strange true screening where you're just watching the movie, really enjoying it. That was one where I didn't know the script from start to finish. So I didn't know exactly where our stuff would fall. But you know, 80% of the film in, I'm like, wait, it should have probably played by now. That's strange. I haven't seen any of these shots yet. And then the credits roll. And I was like, wait, so that whole sequence we worked on was cut. And nobody had any idea at the time that this would have been something even remotely on the chopping block. Um, and what was extra weird about it was the story itself seemed to change away from Rogue having such um, a massive presence in that sequence, switching over to Kitty Pride being the one that handled that part of the story um, in terms of navigating the time travel. So, you know, we ended up, you know, getting credit anyway, which is another great but strange thing. And then I just never really thought about it. And then this trailer came online on YouTube that said the Rogue Cut will be released as a follow up Blu ray. And I thought, okay, well, I guess they are going <laughs> to release this in some form. Um, and apparently they thought it was worth, you know, putting all the final VFX into and um, re-editing into the original movie. And so I can't say that's ever happened before where what you work on that's cut somehow still boomerangs back in later to uh, show up in the movie. But uh, that was one of the more bizarre experiences <laughs> with, you know, seeing what you worked on actually not get cut in the end i remember when that came out where they were like oh there's this whole extra scene and as they as i watched it i was like why did they not put this in the first time like this was great this was an awesome scene and it added i thought a lot to the movie so um it was cool that you were able to work on that yeah there's all sorts of reasons why stuff gets cut and you know oftentimes it's just running length um but you know, when something works and, and boosts the, the feel and flow of the movie, it's nice to know that now there's always going to be the option for that to potentially come back um, 
at least in some sort of rumored form or, you know, director interview later on where they talk about the general concepts, um, like the Colin Trevorrow version of um, Rise of Skywalker, for example. Well, I feel like this is becoming more of a common concept now in cinema in general, just because you get like the Snyder cut coming out with DC of just, I guess the execs realizing a lot of the stuff on the cutting room floor has a lot more value than they think firsthand. Yeah, I totally agree. I think fans at this point um, almost expect that there'll be some sort of alternate version, if not coming out with the actual content that was made, um, then, you know, some sort of uh, uh, script leak or, or that kind of thing hitting the web. And personally, for me, I, I love seeing all these alternate versions of movies and what if scenarios, um, because I know how much work uh, the filmmakers do that doesn't actually make it into the final movie. And that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that when you um, try to prioritize the most important elements of the story, you know, it, it all has to fit into roughly two hours and, and that's and that's not going to catch everything. Yeah, and it's got to be awesome as an animator realizing that, okay, even though a material was cut, that somebody saw enough value into it to use it as basically hype to resell the property even more so. So I think that's awesome that you got that scene in there and that it actually added to the hype of the movie being released. Totally, yeah. But on other kind of nerdy movie front, Justice, you're a huge fan of Deadpool too. Oh, I am. I, I would venture my hot take for any time we talk about Deadpool is that Deadpool 2 is better than Deadpool 1. Um, come at me, fans. But you were able to work on Deadpool 2. What were some of the cool aspects of that? So Ted, Deadpool 2 was a really great experience because, um, number one, we were basically at Fox the whole time. And that was right at the moment when Disney was buying Fox. So to work on a Marvel superhero film during that time was the, the speculation bubble exploded at that point for what the potential could be for future Marvel movies. Um, but just as far as what was unique to the Deadpool franchise, there's so much just out there humor and gore and action that it was a very unbridled sort of <laughs> uh, range of shots to work on from uh, when he was exploding in slow motion for that oil or that gas barrel suicide shot um and just animating the x-jet and um just having that chance to e even meet the director and, and work with him as we were pre-visiting and post-visiting shots um we worked on a lot of the third act stuff with juggernaut and it, it was a lot of fun and just get cable getting kicked into a car and you know just shots like that were were a lot of fun Oh, and oh, wait, before I forget, uh, yeah, and then one of the other parts that I remembered was when there was that part with Juggernaut and the other guys fighting him, I also worked on the uh, few shots where Juggernaut was pulling Deadpool off his back and then slamming him down onto a spiked fence, and then <laughs> for the rest of the sequence, he had the fence poking out the side of his head, <laughs> which, which just felt like, what, what else can we put into this? <laughs> Yeah, how do you guys balance, for something like Deadpool, how do you balance the trying to make it somewhat realistic while also be realizing it's freaking Deadpool and it should be funny and outlandish? Like you mentioned him exploding. Like you want to make it look like a legit explosion, but it's also Deadpool, so you're, anything's fair game. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, nothing was off limits essentially, but that was a shot where we had this super slow-mo um, exploding plane, pl uh, plate rather, um, of the fiery explosion. They said, well, look, we can extend this as long as you want. Just make the shot take long enough so that all the pieces of him go by the camera. And it, yeah, it was, a, it was a great one to work on. And that, that seems cool because it's got Celine Dion in the background singing Ashes. And, and it's like... <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> trying to yeah. be serious, but at the same time, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're working on the visuals, right? Just the shots, but you know that so much more is going to come in later with the soundtrack and with Ryan Reynolds going nuts on the uh, on the ADR. <laughs> so, I'm as a as an '80s kid, you probably you know, growing up watching Star Wars, getting into like comics and Marvel, you've been able to work on some pretty cool franchises uh, like Venom and Aquaman and Team NT. Can you uh, share some of your experiences working on those uh, franchises? Sure. Yeah, those in particular were. Um, super super fun and also just meaningful in terms of like the payoff of 
franchises that I loved as a kid in terms of comic books that I read and, you know, toys that I played with with my friend. And um, we would just get a chance to basically do the next evolution of playing with those toys, but, you know, making the movies about them that would inspire the next generation of kids to, to do the same thing. So uh, Venom, there was one sequence that I worked on just a couple shots for because it was a short um, stint, but uh, when he was trying to uh, fight a whole bunch of security guards and just sort of reaches costume out and just stab guys and pull them over and just, you know, use all of his great aggression and seeing how that all came out in the final product was, was really cool. And Aquaman was one where uh, it was a little nuts to see the plate photography for that because it was just so ambitious. And it was a movie that just went for a, a level of complexity and, and just spectacle that I, I was really surprised by, but really excited by at the same time. And what was a little weird about that one was there was so much blue screen photography, um, but a lot of characters had like shiny reflective uh, costumes and like armor. So I was just, you know, doing posters for that and thinking, man, the guys who are going to do this uh, visual effects pass for real are going to have a heck of a time painting out all the reflections in this. And then as far as Ninja Turtles, that was really fun because that was um, that along with like Ghostbusters and Star Wars, uh, those were the toys that I really loved as a kid. And I remember, you know, making sewer playsets out of cardboard boxes that I'd color on and cut up and just playing with all the uh, the toys like the the blimp and the van and uh, getting a chance to be on that project was it was just like hitting a stride that was um, so much fun to work on. Just X-Men, Ninja Turtles, you know, Marvel Avengers, all, all these different franchises um, were coming out like their first or second uh, wave. And it was just being in the, the right place at the right time. So it was super exciting. And you mentioned a little bit too with us how it kind of taught you a little extra elements of cinema with the camera placement and how you basically, you guys in animation are, behind the computer you got to learn that aspect as well yeah that's one of the tricky things about making um you know digital versions of the film is that you're doing it in an office a lot of times away from any sort of real film crew and so you, the education of learning how film cameras can be moved and placed can be a little um uh you know unintuitive let's say so for Ninja Turtles, we had um, one of the filmmakers there with us helping us place cameras in realistic spots um, for the chase sequence that we did going down the snowy mountain. And that helped a lot in terms of getting the next uh, bit of information for grounded, real placement um, and having shots that would cut together that would make a lot of more sense rather than just what some people might do, which is very floaty CG sh shots or stuff that's not really um, grounded in that much reality. So when I saw, when I heard that you were coming on the pod and I saw your body of work, I was just like shocked. And so we've been kind of say we've been we've been saving the 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 really meaty good stuff for the end of it. And I'm I'm excited to like do a deep dive into it uh, with your Avengers work and because we are a Marvel podcast and just everything you worked on it. So Avengers like what just what was your who's your favorite avenger to animate and just like tell me about that experience and work on that first movie absolutely yeah so that was one that um <laughs> when i found out that i would be joining that team in uh manhattan beach i was just floating <laughs> and it was just buzzing with excitement could not believe that that was going to be the next project and so every morning i would drive into work super excited just could not wait to get there and that first day i'll never forget um i was driving into what was then manhattan or uh, sorry the manhattan beach location of um, marvel studios before they moved to burbank and i drove onto the lot took a wrong turn somewhere i think and the next thing i knew i was driving through this exterior set that looked like a new york street and then I see this door open up and two guys come out looking like World War II soldiers for a smoke break. And I'm like, what is going on? Where, where am I? What is this even real? And then uh, we got, you know, I got into the office and, and saw what they were actually doing. And I could not believe that that's 
what we were going to be releasing for the world, you know, without much more time. And the shots, the story, I mean, it, it worked even on the storyboard level and the animatic level. So by the time we were getting to, um, you know, clarifying it a little, little more with previs, it just, uh, it just really sang as, as a project. And, you know, there were a few location changes that, you know, evolved a bit from when we were first starting on it. Um, and that script was really, really under wraps. That was a really um, tough one to understand what the story was going to be start to finish. Um, but when I was wrapping up previs, the plates were coming in for the first Manhattan shots that they had uh, filmed for Tony Stark. And I could not wait to see how that was all going to be put together for the final film. It was a, it was a weird combo of like imposter syndrome, feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. With also memories of being a kid and drawing comic books all the time and you know, playing with the, the toys and reading the, the, the books and the, the cards and just absorbing all that material so um, strongly. And my buddy Sean and I, uh, we even as when we were kids, pretended to form our own comic book company and he would draw or he would write and I would draw. And so when the film came out, I was able to bring him to the screening and it was just one of the best experiences of my life because we were uh, at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills. And on either side of the stage are these giant Oscar statues. And the excitement that was in the air was was so thick and, and unforgettable. And we were seeing the movie it, when it you know, was when each act unfolded, you just saw how it was. It was just a really unique experience of how everything had uh, built and crescendoed into this from all the films prior and the comic books for decades before. And it was a roller coaster for sure. And then when the credits started rolling and I saw my name in the group, I just, I, I couldn't even, it felt like it was unbelievable. Like I had to pinch myself to even think that it was really happening. And uh, for that to be my first film credit was just, I mean, beyond lucky, and and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. What uh, what specific scenes were you able to work on in the first Avengers movie? Right. So Avengers one, uh, one of the big ones was the trailer shot of Hulk jumping and catching Iron Man as he was falling down from the portal, and then carrying him as he slammed against the side of the building and slid down. And another one that I did was the few shots where. Thor versus Hulk. Thor was reaching out for his hammer. It came through a Humvee and then he grabbed it and just smashed it upside of Hulk's face. So that was a really fun moment to animate. And then um, at the very end of the film, I did that final shot where it's pulling out of Stark Tower and then it finally reveals that the A is the only letter left in the logo. And yeah, just iconic moments like that. Whenever you're, whenever you're seeing them, it, it, it's it's very special because you know that when it's on a huge screen one day, it's going to work and it's going to give people the same kind of tingly feeling that you get <laughs> when you're in an office doing it years before. Yeah, I know. Every time I see those scenes like the Avengers A or even like you mentioned with Manhattan, you can't help but like get that butterfly kind of feeling with it. What's it like animating these extra special kind of moments? Uh, well, you're always part of a team and it's a very iterative process. So you're, you're doing one version, there's going to be notes saying, okay, try it this way. Maybe we need to bring out this pose. Maybe the timing needs to change. And you're always getting that feedback and you're always looking at the edit as it builds and evolves. And uh, it takes an, an enormous amount of uh, just effort, um, a lot of talent and enthusiasm that's, um, you know, building these things. Um, you know, like I say, years years before. And, and as you're putting them together and improving on them, you're trying to nail the right tone, the right clarity, the right context. And as you, you know, build that as a team and, and figure out the, the common vocabulary or reference points from other films or the comic books, um, that all informs the direction of how it's going to go. And it has the DNA of, of everybody that works on it. So... Uh, you were able to work on the Thanos versus Iron Man, Cap, and Thor fight in Endgame. 
what was when when you were working on that did you kind of know what was going on or you're just like we're working on this really cool scene and like how, how what, what was that process like yeah so i was i was one of many artists working on that and the great thing about that sequence was we were starting to pre-visit uh well we were pre-visiting it as Infinity War was being wrapped up. So the Russo brothers were too busy um, essentially focusing on making sure that that one got out the door. And the company I was at uh, had all this uh, time and ability to basically blue sky and, and sandbox ideas for how that could look. So there were some pretty brutal versions of that fight um, that you know kind of changed and um, you know morphed over time. And as the feedback came in from the directors, it would go in a different direction or as, as story points were revealed, that would shape it as well. Um, but it was a, a massive team effort to get that looking how it did. And it had to be right. You know, you had to make sure that you explored every avenue um, to make sure that the payoff was, you know, appropriate for how much investment fans had been putting in to seeing it through all the way to the end. Did you know that Cap was picking up Thor's hammer and that, or was that like a later thing that was added? No, actually, that, that was something pretty early on. Yeah, that, that I worked on a, a couple of those shot revisions a little bit later on. Um, so that was a big moment that when you when you saw it in the previews, you knew that this is too good not to make it into the final film. So I, I, that was one that we were pretty confident about. I think <laughs> was it was it how hard was it to like be like go with your family or friends and just be like, I can't tell you anything, but you're gonna love this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, I personally, you know, even though my job is very much having to be desensitized to spoilers, I really try to make sure that I don't give any impression of the tone of a movie or that kind of thing. I'll just kind of say, hey, you should see this and leave it at that. Because um, the fun part for me is hearing the reaction from other people, what resonated with them and what, you know, they loved. So, yeah, it, it's something that uh, everybody has a different reaction to. And I'm always curious to hear, you know, what people liked and Social media is great for that as well in terms of finding out, um, you know, the big moments and the, the memes that get made and all that stuff uh, that circulates around after a release. Yeah, I, I saw it opening night and in my theater, people were freaking out when he picked up the hammer and like that whole scene. So uh, thanks for working on that. I'm pretty sure you cried, bro, when we saw it in theaters. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah. Applause. Yeah, that was such a huge moment. Yeah, the team did a great job on that. But taking it away from uh, the big three, though, I do have a question. I because I remember you you put in our little notes here too how you kind of use a little bit of Thanos trades and comics to kind of help guide your animation. Can you describe what you did with that and how comics inspired your work? For sure. Yeah, um, the company I was at there is so great about having uh, reference material and, and trade paperbacks and stuff, and so. When you come into work, you want to make sure that you're also contributing to that um, uh, that library. And so, um, yeah, I ordered every single uh, <laughs> Thanos-related uh, comic book trade that we didn't already have um, back at Meltdown, Meltdown Comics when they were still around in L.A. And uh, they were very useful. I mean, obviously, it's a very different style back then. It's It's got its own um, kind of period-specific aesthetic that doesn't necessarily translate to a film, but you can always keep your eye out for maybe some sort of pose or uh, you know facial expression that just seems to work um, even when you're animating a totally different version of the character years later. Um, and that's the thing that I think fans are always uh, hoping to see revealed somehow when they see these films. They want to make sure that they're obviously um, fresh and exciting and full of surprises, but also very much um, familiar and reconnecting to what they enjoyed um, on, you know, in print. And that, that's a, a very uh, crucial connection to have between those two mediums. When you were animating that fight scene, were the, was, did you, um, were you given some cinematography before or was that just all kind of like just concept based and that you guys were working on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that fight sequence, the team had been fleshing out for, for a little while. And so when I had joined, it was basically kind of seeing where could we put the camera, what could we adjust um, to weave into the existing uh, edit that was being created. And so um, 
the great thing about those fights that the Russos um, established with their style was how quick everything cut and how dramatic the camera motions were. And it felt almost anime at times. And so it was evolved much farther beyond where they were on Avengers, for example. So, you know, I think it was five years later um, that Infinity War and, and Endgame were being uh, prevised. And you could just see how the taste had evolved um, for the heroes at that point. And so you had to kind of take stock almost on a subconscious level um, of what sort of camera moves would be changed to adapt to that. So um, with all your like body of work and everything that you've been able to make, what has been the most challenging and most, most rewarding movie you have worked on? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, I think for me, Infinity War and Endgame, because of the scope of that project and the talent level of the team and just making sure that I brought everything I had every day, you know, that was very difficult. And also um, the role that I was on in the team was uh, a very new one for me. And I had to learn a lot of new knowledge and, and techniques to uh, get up to speed on that. So it took a lot of asking questions and um, tolerating being uncomfortable, but it was uh, super educational and I learned a lot from that. And it was, it's always useful to, you know, have that humble reminder that you're working on a team and, you know, you just have to bring whatever you can and um, things will change and improve. And um, it's all one, you know, cause that everybody's working towards. So it made me a much more complete, like visual effects artist and animator for that. And since I was the only person on the team who had worked on the first Avengers, um, it was fun to reconnect with the franchise and see it released again to even more acclaim to see that um, the audiences were, you know, more ready than ever to see those heroes in their next installment. Um, and then you said the one I was most most proud of, I would say the first Avengers, because for me, it just had everything in terms of, um, you know, working on a film lot for the first time and working with those sorts of, uh, you know, high profile characters. Um, it, it just had the best of everything in, in, in its own way. And the uh, crew screening went amazing. And yeah, it, I smile every time I think about it. And uh, we also... The team that we had on the Orville season two, which was the only um, episodic series I've worked on um, for that many episodes, that also had its own um, massive uh, challenges and workload and I'm very still very proud of the work that that team put in to achieve the uh, the space battle episodes and, and all the stuff that we um, had to make for that second season. I've heard a lot of people recommend to me watching the Orville just because, I mean, Seth MacFarlane humor plus a Star Trek vibe. Just It just seems like it'd be a super fun show to work on. It was. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. Where if you're even somewhat in those camps and, you know, for whether it's family guy fandom or just a Star Trek fan, um, for me, it was always fun every week to see the new episode come out and, and see the, uh, the fan reactions to it because um, it, it had that unique plus to it where, you know, if it's a film, you wait a long time, it comes out, it's out for a few you know weeks and then the buzz goes down. But um, with the TV show, it's every single week that you're dropping new surprises on people. And that was, that, it was really satisfying to have that um, repeated experience for one title. So uh, what are you currently working on, if you're allowed to talk about that? Uh, usually not. <laughs> so right now I'm working on an undisclosed film uh, with, with Technicolor. But yeah, we're, we're, we usually work on these um, films around the time that they're being cast. So it, it's very early. It's during pre-production. Um, and then the stuff that we make is um, never really seen. It, it's always just kind of... Um, evolved into final visual effects and the play photography that they shoot. So um, a lot of what we do, it just never sees the light of day, even though when you compare it against um, the final shots, you'll see, oh yeah, that's exactly the same timing, the same composition, um, you know, sometimes lighting. You know, there's all these ways that you can help inform the final film uh, through previous. 
And that's what's so fun about it. How do you feel about the process of previs versus kind of the final tweaking animation? Do you prefer the kind of open creativity of previs or the fact of having something you know is definitely going to be in the film? Yeah, I've really enjoyed seeing both um, both areas for that to know uh, what it takes to get something truly to final quality. That That's very satisfying to have that be kind of stamped forever and no matter what you you know if it's playing a game or you know i've done some final animation other times and it, it's nice to know um that when you achieve that quality level um it's immortal in its own sense <laughs> and then as far as previous goes what i still love about it is it feels like it's the best avenue to express the most of the interests and talents that i have um, and being a, an animator was a lot of fun in games, but, you know, after a while I thought, well, it would be fun to start exploring other parts of Maya, the software that you use to um, do this character animation. And it would be fun to actually do some more of the storytelling and, you know, possibly uh, changing how a story not only is told, but um, how it looks and, and where it can go. And one of the cool things about Previs is, you know, there might be a few different takes that people have on how a sequence could look or what characters can do. And you might just say, okay, we'll do this version of the movie for this person. And this person uh, wants their own little take on the sequence. And then the director decides in the studio decides, um, well, we're going to go with this and this one, you know, didn't work, but it's a, uh, it's a very collaborative um, medium and it, it uses a lot of uh, experience that people are, you know, bringing to it in their own ways. That's sweet. So, one, I've got a question. Are you dying to work on any certain movie franchise? You've, you've hit a lot, but is there, like, one that you just want to work on really badly? <laughs> Star Wars is still the white whale for me. That's one that I've tried to connect to in the past, and um, there have been two times where I got close, um, but I was not able to connect to the, the franchise and as much as those were, you know, a bummer and a disappointment, I still have not lost hope that there will be a chance in the future to finally work on them. And um, I'm super excited for the Obi-Wan series. That, for me, would be um, the one to watch because he's still my favorite character after Luke. Um, and The Mandalorian came out with, with such uh, heat behind it that I think that tone and, and those kinds of... Uh, portrayals of Star Wars characters is really what a lot of fans have been clamoring for. And it's nice to know that um, they've got a good home for, you know, Disney plus and, and the home audience. Yeah. You're, you're in a perfect spot right now where there's so many different Disney plus shows that they could totally come out with that. You might have the opportunity to work on that. Uh, were you able to watch the Mandalorian? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's one that uh, it, it kind of hit all the right notes for me. Like, like I said, you know, the Disney and the Lucas prequels, um, they all did their own things well and, and still over, overlooked a few things. And so for The Mandalorian, I think the tone that it struck and the quiet moments that it had and, you know, the, the dark moments and all, all of it blended really well. Um, and so for me, that's, that's still one of my favorite uh, releases for Star Wars. Because uh, I don't know if you had the chance to watch the, the gallery behind the scenes thing, but they talk about the volume and how they are filming using that. Um, as an animator, how do you feel like that has changed the game? Do you see other studios going and using that, or is that just going to be like a just a Disney thing? Yeah, I mean it's incredibly expensive, and it takes a lot of um, uh, specialists to you know make that work. But it's certainly um, the way the industry is going in terms of. Um, being able to see the full picture, even with all the visual effects um, during the shoot, instead of having that be a drawn out process where you shoot it and then months later, you're actually trying to piece all the visual effects back in. Um, and as the timeline for uh, production sort of compresses, that's gonna be it, it, what continues to get improved as far as the quicker responsiveness of computers and technology and actors seeing the virtual stages around them while they do the mocap performances so yeah avatar and, and films like that are just going to keep pushing that forward 
yeah, we're we're very spoiled because we get to you know have a new Star Wars season or whatever it is, geeky media come out. You know, instead of waiting years in between movies, we get a new season every other year. So it's yeah. it's cool seeing how technology has helped improve the how fast we're able to get content out. Absolutely, we're in a good place. All right, so we we uh, when we normally end our podcast we ask this one final question and it's a question that i love asking people because it's it's uh, great to hear from people's experience and hopefully someone out there is able to listen and maybe um if they want to go into animation they can learn from you know your answer so what is your greatest professional failure and how have you learned from that yeah so as i alluded to before um not connecting to the star wars film that i thought i had a chance to get on um, was probably the the greatest professional failure. Um, so it was thinking back to it. It was, it was 2003, and I was flown out to San Francisco for a job interview with the previous team at the Skywalker Ranch, and it was for Revenge of the Sith. And it went well. I, I thought I you know got along with the guys really well, but they ended up passing, and some of them went on to form a company with the guy they ended up going with. Um, so it was devastating and a shock and you know it, it was like a bad dream like this wasn't how my story was supposed to go but you know it was also a valuable wake-up call for me to remember that just wanting something isn't enough and that there's always something you can do to better position yourself to achieve your goals and you just don't want to have the regrets of not doing enough and then also alongside that um it's almost like a team sport you know when you're on these sorts of projects and Sometimes the team already has somebody in your position and they're just not quite looking for um, the skills that you have for that particular project at that particular time. So you can't take it, you know, personally like that. So, you know, I haven't given up on it. And I would definitely recommend for people listening that if something means that much to you, you're going to have to find a way to maintain that determina determination. And, you know, I wish you luck. And it's, it's, there's going to be tough times where you're just, just waiting for that next chance. Um, but while you're waiting, just make sure you're always advancing at the same time in every way you can to be undeniable so that the next time you get that, um, that shot, you know, you're, you're, you're prepared and you make it happen. Awesome. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Just, you know, a lot of people think it's just breaking into the, whatever medium you want to get into. But after that, you know, you got to keep staying hungry, staying active, making sure, cause there's a, you know, all those people already in the in that area that working you're working in, and there's people behind you trying to get in. So that's an awesome answer. Um, yeah. So Josh, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, wh where can people find you? Socials, website. Yeah, yeah, the, all those things. Uh, I want to I want to thank you guys very much for having me on. This was fun, and I'm always happy to talk about you know just. Marvel, Star Wars, it's just, it, it flows very easily. <laughs> uh, so for me, if you guys want to, you know, learn more or, or just keep in touch over the future, um, you can find me on Twitter at Art of Josh Lang. And that's with an E at the end. And Facebook, Art of Josh Lang, YouTube, Art of Josh Lang. And my website is joshlang.com. And is there anything that you uh, want to promote? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, right now, it, you know, it's a, it, everybody's in a tough time. And I just hope everybody's wearing masks and staying safe. And, you know, I hope everybody's registered to vote. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things at stake right now. And I hope everybody's um, doing the responsible thing. You know, it, it's fun to think about, you know, fantasy pieces and, and the creativity that comes from that. But, you know, this is reality that we live in as well and so you always want to make sure that you're um doing what you can to connect and improve things um you know in this in this existence yeah well thank you so much josh for coming on the show sharing your experiences and everyone you can always get in touch with us at pod wars podcast on twitter and ask pod wars podcast at gmail.com and everyone have a great week